Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am in New Jersey, where it's raining, but it hasn't really started raining really hard, which apparently it's going to do later in the week with a hurricane and so forth. In one of the target zones of the hurricane, we have Rosa Brooks um, of Georgetown University Law School, who is sipping on her sloth mug that her children gave her. David, you think the hurricane is specifically targeting me? I think specifically. <laughs> specifically targeting you. And also not too far from there is Mika Oyang, who is It's at, probably targeting Mika. It's probably. It's, she it's, probably is the hurricane. Yes. They just call natural disaster to me. Yeah. <laughs> right. And she's at the third way. And then in London, England, where it's always sunny. <laughs> Okay, let me just say it may not be sunny, but I am all sunny to be back in the Deep State Radio tribe and recording with you guys this evening. You are are never out of the Deep State Radio tribe, Corey. Excellent. Uh, Thank you. I never want to be. Yeah, no, no. You are never out, and we are glad that you are back. And here we are. It's sort of back to school week in Washington. Things are happening. Last week was a little bit crazy. But instead of getting all caught up in Crazy Town and 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 the Woodward book and all of that right now, maybe we'll save that for our next episode. I thought I'd start in another place where, um, you know, sanity uh, seems to have have departed the scene. Um, and that's the speech that was just given not too long ago by America's national security advisor, John Bolton. Um, And he gave a speech outlining why America does not want to be part of the International Criminal Court. We've always been a little ambivalent, but all the ambivalence is gone. He said it was dead to us. Um, And, uh, you know, apparently fears that, you know, we might be prosecuted for something. Um, and so we have joined Russia and Israel, uh, among the very few countries in the world that, uh, are opposing this. And this is part of a broader pattern, which we have to stop and acknowledge, which includes getting out of the Paris Accords, getting out of the, uh, JICPOA, as Rosa likes to refer to it, uh, pulling back from the TPP, pulling out of, uh, uh, the UN refugee group that was serving um, uh, uh, the Palestinians, UN Human Rights Commission, we really seem to be sort of present at the deconstruction, present at the, at the end of, 
of the the order that the United States started building in 1945, which is you know worthy of note. And so I thought we could note it, Corey. How would you note it? I actually don't agree with you on this one, David. I don't think it's the liberal, the end of the liberal order. I do think the order is much more resilient than we are currently worried about it being. And and just as one example, the fact that the United States has always been ambivalent about a lot of these treaty commitments, as you point out, uh, the the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, we not only helped negotiate it, we not only abide by its terms, we enforce its terms on China and other countries. And yet we have never been willing to put it before the Senate for ratification. So I, I do think the United States has always been uncomfortably back and forth on a lot of these treaties, but that doesn't, I think, um, that message is going to have a difficult time resonating with the vituperative aggressiveness of the National Security Advisor's speech um, and the signal that it is sending to countries around the world about not just the United States having some ambivalence about elements of the, of the treaties that we have been party to and are advancing, but the willful destruction of the order. We have actually never had an American president since 1945 who doesn't appear to believe in the fundamental building blocks of the liberal international order. But Donald Trump, by by every evidence of his behavior, does not. No, he doesn't. I think, yeah, I mean, I think we, we, we agree on that point. Mika, where do you come out on all this? No, I actually... Um, sort of between the two of you on this one. I don't think it's so gloom and doom that it's the total destruction of the liberal order, but I do think that what we're seeing is a creeping discomfort among some elements of uh, some people in the U.S. with the role of global rule setter. And while I think after World War II, we did a really good job of trying to get the rest of the world to adopt rules that we would want to live by and that were to our advantage— what we've seen lately is a discomfort with the idea that we are the global referee and this view that we should just play the game. And if the rules are going to at some point disadvantage us, we shouldn't be playing that game anymore. We shouldn't be responsible for setting the rules. Um, and I think that you can see that discomfort with rule of law and the idea that you'll have to abide by the rules, whether they are in your favor or not in a lot of the ways that some elements of the Republican Party have been reacting, not just to the ICC and to the JCPOA, but a whole range of other things having to do with the Mueller investigation and other other uh, rules of law. Um, okay. First of all, before we get to you, Rosa, I, w- I wasn't saying that it was you know all gloom and doom. I was just saying I see a pattern where they seem to be trying to dismantle these things in keeping with this worldview that Corey ascribed to the president, which I agree with, and where Bolton seems to be one of the more extreme views on this. And here he is out there, you know, sort of taking one more brick out of the wall. Anyway, Rosa, where do you come out? Well, this is classic John Bolton, and he's been obsessed with the International Criminal Court for many, many years now. Um, 
I, you know, so so this doesn't particularly surprise me. I'm sure his, you know, very high on his to-do list after get appointed national security advisor was, you know, destroy international criminal court. It's probably item number two. So I'm, I'm sure he's very happy that he now has the opportunity to at least attempt to put that uh, plan into motion. You what know, was item number one? <laughs> item number one was become national security advisor. <laughs> um, but but so so I, I think it is the ICC, the International Criminal Court, is a little bit of a special case. It's been kind of the you know bugbear. What is I can't what that's not a real word. Yeah. What no, do you but, call it? The bugbear? Bugbear? Yeah. Bug bugbear? That Some sounds wrong that. somehow. But anyway, whatever it is. Um, it's been the thing that has it has just been like a thorn in the side of American neocons for many, many years. And you'll recall, our, our listeners may recall, that uh, the United States for, for decades championed the idea of an international criminal court. And the idea was, you know, to bring to justice the perpetrators of the most egregious atrocities, you know, genocide, uh, uh, you know, mass use of torture, et cetera. Um, and in a credible international court. But then when it came right down to it during the Clinton administration, under Democratic president at the very last minute, and I was I was involved with this as a junior uh, person at the State Department at the time, um, the United States, um, despite having played a, a really vital role in the negotiations and drafting a lot of the language in what became the statute of the international court, at the last minute voted against the adoption of the Rome statute that uh, created the court. And that was a big brouhaha even at the time. Um, the US, you know, And there were lots of hand-wringing over whether the U.S. Uh, was, it was sort of seen as, as a, you know, potential... Uh, you know, three strikes, you're out. The U.S. had um, not been part of the Landmines Convention, didn't vote for the International Criminal Court statute, and at the time was the one outlier We that later changed, uh, standing against the um, uh, creation of the optional protocol on, on child soldiers, um, on raising the age of participation in armed conflicts. Um, so it, there was a lot of hand-wringing at the time about you know, oh, the Clinton administration and all this American exceptionalism, they're, they're not joining all of these things. Then Clinton had this weird 11th hour uh, change of heart. Um, and after the election of 2000, um, uh, with remember, the, with, its, with its hanging chads and so forth, um, when after the Supreme Court decision in Bush versus Gore, it became clear that George W. Bush was going to be president, Clinton decided at the 11th hour that he was going to sign uh, the onto the uh, ICC treaty, um, which was kind of weird. He said, I'm going to sign it, but but I'm never nobody's ever going to submit it to the Senate for ratification, but I'm going to sign it. So there was this weird celebration at the United Nations. The U.S. signed it, um, signing and as a as a legal matter, signing tends to commit is viewed as committing a state not to undermine the object and purpose of a treaty. So even if you never ratify it, you're supposed to sort of be friendly to it. Then Bush comes along, John Bolton becomes ambassador to the United Nations, and his first act is to announce that he's going to, quote, unsign the treaty. And everybody wrings their hands again <laughs> because everybody's like, what? You know, what? That doesn't even exist. Like, what do you mean you're going to unsign the treaty? And technically, it's not that he didn't actually get the document back from the secretary general and, you know, put white out over Bill Clinton's signature. <laughs> um, but essentially what he what he did was say, um, 
I, we hate this. We're never going to, not only are we never going to ratify it as Bill Clinton said, but you know, we're absolutely going to try to undermine its object and purpose. And then shortly thereafter in 2002, uh, Congress passed what the American service members protection act, um, which was nicknamed the Hague invasion act, the seat of the international criminal court being at the Hague in the Netherlands, um, because it was a piece of legislation that was so viewed as so hostile to the international criminal court. Uh, it essentially said that any state that ever turned over any American citizen, uh, to the court that the, uh, was authorized the president to use all means necessary and, and appropriate to bring about their release, which, um, is the kind of language we tend to use in authorizations to use force, thus the nickname Hague Invasion Act. Um, so, and I say all that just to say that the, you know, deep hostility from Republicans in particular to the international court is, is, is absolutely nothing new. Um, and indeed the ambivalence on the side of Democrats is also nothing new that what, what changed, the only thing that sort of really changed is that President Bush found by the time he got to his second term, uh, and we were looking, uh, at situations for instance, genocidal behavior in, in Sudan, um, that it's actually kind of convenient to have an international criminal court to which you can refer particularly egregious atrocities. Um, and so the Bush administration ended up kind of tiptoeing back in the direction of the court and, and, uh, not, not blocking various referrals to the court. The Obama administration continued that didn't, didn't ratify, didn't submit for ratification or seek to get it ratified, but began, began more openly to say, yeah, actually we basically support this. We've got some issues with specific things, but we, you know, we're going to try to be helpful to the court. Um, so here comes John Bolton, and and for John Bolton, it is not 2018. For John Bolton, it is still the year 2000, um, and so he's just going right back to you know status quo ante. Um, the irony of all of this um, is that I think in the intervening 18 years, those of us who've been paying attention would probably say that the court has. <laughs> shown evidence that it is neither as good as its uh, as its proponents imagined it would be, nor anywhere near as menacing to the United States and U.S. sovereignty as its opponents thought it would be. It's 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 less important altogether than everybody thought it would be. So I don't necessarily read this. I read this as John Bolton having a, a, a weird obsession with the International Criminal Court and not a whole lot more, although it is absolutely of a piece with the with the Trump Trump's broader contempt for everything multilateral. I, I agree with everything Rosa just said. The only thing I will say in defense of the National Security Advisor was that oh, that's never happened here. That's yeah, I know. Newsflash. <laughs> is that um, it? It is rumored that the court is looking to hand down indictments against the United States for war crimes in Afghanistan. And Rosa, please correct my understanding if I'm mistaken, but I thought that um, that countries that had legal systems capable of conducting investigations of their own culpability, that would be the court of first resort. So I think, I don't wanna say provocation is too strong a word because I think we ought always to be able to defend our actions and I think our actions are defensible in Afghanistan. Um, but, but there may have been uh, uh, a 
legislation that could quickly be pending that he that sparked him speaking about it now. Can I just ask, because I did not actually see the speech, but I'm wondering what exactly they're concerned about with Afghanistan, because my understanding for the ICC was that if a nation was unwilling or unable to deal with its own war crimes, as Corey says, like we would be the crime of first resort. And I feel like, or sorry, the court of first resort, I feel like U.S. military has been pretty good about investigating and prosecuting what it considers war crimes and has been quite firm in its application of Geneva to its own service members. So I'm just not sure that I recall any particular incidents in Afghanistan that might rise to the level of the ICC taking action separate and apart from what the U.S. military has already done. I could see, you know, there were certainly incidents in Iraq in 2003, but I'm maybe I'm missing something and it's sort of fallen below the radar in our collective sort of failure to see Afghanistan and its conflict clearly over the past few years. But I'm sort of wondering what the incident might be. So I, I, I'm not sure. Um, I have not been following it super closely, but, but I think it is worth saying that it, it remains a pretty paranoid fear on the part of uh, John Bolton and others, the notion that some unspecified U.S. service members will be, you know, dragged kicking and screaming over the diplomatic protests of the United States into the dock at The Hague um, for all the reasons that Corey mentioned. The, the, the court is set up to essentially defer to countries that are uh, able to make appropriate and credible investigations of their own. And although the prosecutor can initiate investigations, um, of his or her own accord, um, that doesn't, even if the prosecutor finds evidence of wrongdoing, that doesn't necessarily mean that anybody ends up before the court because states can, states can essentially, and I, and I, and it's been a while since I studied the, the procedures in, in detail. At one point I knew them much better than I know them now. Um, but there are multiple steps along the way at which the stated issue can say, got it ourselves. You know, we we have investigated and we found no issue or we have investigated and we referred it to our own courts. Um, so the likelihood that anything could end up in front of the International Criminal Court um, in any situation in which the U.S. military had done any reasonable degree of due diligence is pretty much zero. So it's, it's a pretty paranoid fear. So, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, unless... Bolton's planning on committing some war crimes for which. <laughs> right. Well, well, you know, I think that one of the things that uh, motivated this was not the potential charges against the United States, but it was uh, the likelihood of cases being brought against the Israelis. I, and, think, I think that's right. And and that this is in fact part of a broader set of moves. Uh, which also included today closing the PLO office in Washington uh, and last, you know, the last couple of days planning to shut off funding to hospitals in East Jerusalem and prior to that shutting off funding uh, to the UN organization that administers to Palestinian refugees, where the United States is right now essentially um, – seeking every method at its disposal, I don't think just to pressure the Palestinians, but to to punish them. I mean, you know, who's going to be, who's going to suffer from not funding a hospital? 
you know, it's it's not going to be the the government of uh, you know of, the, of Palestinian territories. It's 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 going to be people in the hospital. Many of you know some of these are are, are cancer patients uh, who benefit from this funding. Um, Corey, talk a little bit about this. I mean, this is all part of a piece. You know, that there, there is this kind of international order piece, but you know, it looks to me increasingly like the United States. Department of State or the White House has handed over the keys to U.S. Middle East policy to Bibi Netanyahu and said, do with it what you will. I think that's right, David. I actually think they have lost their perspective on where America's interests differ from the prime minister of Israel's interests. Um, the, my favorite expense of American foreign assistance in the last 10 years has been, was a program started during the Bush administration to train Palestinian security forces. And what it did was persuade Palestinians that we are actually interested in good outcomes for them, uh, that we and they could be partners in common security and the Palestinian security forces became cooperative with the Israelis because they understood that it was in their interest to manage security threats in Palestine so that Israel did not intercede in the Palestinian territories. It was such smart long-term planning. It bought us enormous amount of goodwill um, and it is the exact reverse of the kind of narrow, stingy, hurtful, cruel choices that the Trump administration is making on the embassy to Jerusalem, on all sorts of things that are going to buy the United States a generation of resentment, not just from the Palestinians, but from others who look at us wielding our power in a ruthless way. What has made the liberal order so cost-effective for the United States is that the, the attractiveness of how we wielded our power, and that's what we're doing so brutally wrong in the Trump administration. Moreover, we're not even doing what's in Israel's interest. We're doing what's in Prime Minister Netanyahu's electoral interests, and that makes it even worse. Yeah, well, Mika, it's, it strikes me that we, at least in the past, tried to maintain the posture of being an honest broker or something in that zip code. You know, we 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 tried to show some degree of even-handedness, and all pretense of that's just gone out the window. I yeah, mean, I think we, yeah, the U.S. for so long has been a right advocate for a two-state solution in Israel and recognizing that as you try to get the two parties to the negotiating table to actually reach an agreement that you can't so favorably lean towards one side that the other side loses trust with you but i also think on this icc thing one of the things that it does is a disservice to israel because you know as rose and i were talking about a state's ability to prosecute its own service members for violations of war crimes, you know, people may object to the way that Israel has been, and there's, I know it's been controversial how it's been handling um, things in the West Bank, but it is also true that it's a live debate in Israel about how to do that. And they have an independent 
judiciary that has looked at these things. It's been quite controversial inside of Israel itself um, to look at some of the things that their soldiers have done to determine whether or not they are, in fact, war crimes. Now, people can disagree with how that comes out, but they do have an internal process to do that. So at some level, the concern that they are going to get hauled in front of the ICC when they seem to have their own functioning justice system seems to me a little overblown. Yeah, I think, ironically, um, in on the merits, Israel is probably better protected than, in some ways, the U.S. is. And and I, I was just uh, doing a little quick Googling to see what particularly was making John Bolton crazy. And it turns out that it is the one thing in which the U.S. is, is in a pretty bad position, legally speaking, not to mention morally and ethically speaking, Um that what's got them in a rage uh, is not the generic investigation the prosecutor has been making that's been ongoing into war crimes and crimes against humanity that may have been committed in the context of Afghanistan, including by the Taliban, as well as by U.S. and other other personnel. Uh, but the specific thing that's making them crazy is her investigation uh, into the treatment of detainees and the use of torture, particularly by uh, CIA personnel and contractors. And that, you know, as as we said earlier, the the single best protection against an ICC prosecution uh, uh, of your citizens is to be able to say in good faith, you know, we investigated this ourselves, even if the outcome, as Mika says, uh, even if the outcome is not what you would like if it was a credible good faith investigation, um, you know, and we concluded there wasn't enough there that the ICC, it, it's hard to get past that if it's if it's a credible good faith investigation. And, and in the Israeli case, uh, even when it both when it comes to mistreatment of detainees and when it comes to drone strikes, Israel has submitted those to judicial review and the Israeli Supreme Court has weighed in directly on those issues, that there's a much more robust internal process. You know, again, we may not like the outcome, but but clearly it's been a serious legal process that has attempted in a in a very serious way to grapple with both domestic and international law. Um, and on the case of drone strikes, for instance, the Israeli Supreme Court has said, you know, there absolutely has to be judicial review. You don't get blanket, oh, okay, go for it. You know, as long as you say it was a terrorist threat, you can do whatever you want. That there has to be individualized investigation with judicial oversight in every situation, which is much more robust form of oversight than we have, for instance, of drone strikes carried out by by U.S. Uh, either military or or intelligence forces. And when it comes to the uh, CIA use of torture uh, in Afghanistan and elsewhere, um, the U.S. government, uh, aside from the Senate report, has uh, absolutely shoved it under the rug. So we're in a much weaker position on that, you know. And and frankly, speaking as a speaking as a lawyer, um, it it would be entirely right and appropriate for an international criminal court to say to us, you know what? Your personnel are have been credibly accused. There's substantial evidence that they violated international law and the Geneva Conventions egregiously. And you basically shrugged your shoulders and said, all is forgiven. Maybe we kind of overreacted a little bit. Maybe not. You know, we're just not going to talk about it. Um, you know, th that is actually the kind of thing the ICC was set up to do. So that is what is making them crazy. The Israelis have less less to fear on that particular issue than we do. Well, in some respects, although, you know, Corey, when I listen to all of this, I think of 
the president talking with regard to other investigations about his fear of a perjury trap uh, when many people have pointed out <laughs> that the the best way to avoid a perjury trap is to tell the truth. Not to lie. Right. right. And, I, and I think the best way to avoid a war crimes trap is to not actually commit war crimes. Um, <laughs> And, yes, and that's true. But I am more sympathetic, I think, than uh, perhaps some others are about the fact that um, that we do have a right to be worried about international tribunals that, for example, view the Geneva Conventions as prohibiting civilian casualties as opposed to putting it in the context of achieving your war aims as well. That I, I do think in, in an American um, context where we fight a lot of wars and deal with these issues often, that, that there is uh, sometimes greater appreciation that you put military forces in harm's way to achieve high-level national purposes, and that sometimes gets lost in other evaluations of us. I would hope that would never be the case in a court, and I have no evidence that it would be the case in a court. But I do recall during the Bush administration us having a tussle over whether Donald Rumsfeld could actually go to a NATO meeting in Belgium because the where the NATO headquarters is because of a Belgian law that permitted uh, people to be tried for war crimes, whether or not they Belgium had anything any relationship to them, and we were genuinely worried about about that possibility. So I I don't think it's simply crazy to be concerned about it. And Rosa's point about wow, our process isn't nearly robust enough to withstand judicial review. I agree. The the right solution is fix our process so that it meets judicial standard. But if that's not where we are, they're not crazy to be worried about that. But why are, why, but, but so Corey explained this to me, you're, as, 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 a, as a sane, thoughtful Republican, ex explain to me what the fear is, right? Because I, I, I hear what you just said about the Geneva Convention, civilian casualties, and I think nobody, nobody in the international court uh, thinks that all civilian casualties constitute war crimes. Um, um, not at all. Um, that's not the law. That's never been the law. It's not the way the court has interpreted the Geneva Conventions. It's not the way any international or regional court has interpreted the Geneva Conventions. So I would look at that and say, we have no particular, on the contrary, I think the biggest criticism that could be leveled at the International Criminal Court, as well as at the uh, ad hoc tribunals for Rwanda, Yugoslavia, uh, and other special courts such as Sierra Leone, is that they have been very little C conservative in, in applying the law, uh, partly because they're so terrified of backlash from powerful states such as the United States. Um, so so I don't I don't think there's any there neither was any reason up front to, to think that they were going to suddenly go crazy and come up with interpretations of the law that nobody had ever come up with before, nor does their track record suggest it. So given that, I think, what's the worry? So, so if some American official was indicted by a credible international court who said there is evidence that you you were complicit or, or, or used torture in violation of international law and 
we kind of said, oh, yeah, gosh, come to think of it, looks like we never did a serious investigation in the United States. Why would it be bad for that person to end up facing a facing legal process at The Hague? I mean, there's a separate question from whether it's likely to ever happen, but what would be the problem? So you're the legal advisor to the Secretary of Defense. Is that the advice you're going to give him? It's going to be okay, boss, even if you get arrested when your plane lands in Brussels. No, I'm going to say I'm going to say exactly what I did say when when I was at the Pentagon, which is if you don't want to end up facing any legal jeopardy in a foreign country, whether it's Belgium or whether it's an international tribunal, uh, the way to protect yourself from that is to follow our own laws, which we have not done in this case. And if we are unwilling and if we are unwilling or unable to uh, follow our own rules with regard to things like the prohibition of torture and the War Crimes Act, federal legislation, then then, yeah, I'm OK. I don't want to have I don't want to see U.S. service members uh, or CIA personnel getting away with egregious crimes, which is what there is some evidence, particularly on the intelligence side, has has happened. I don't I don't see how that advances our interests as a nation. I mean, and to be clear that we're not just beating up on Republicans because it was Holder who declined to investigate and prosecute. Yeah, Democrats have been pretty crappy on this, too. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I just we, we just have a couple more minutes here and I want to sort of provide as a kind of an epilogue a little bit of a look forward uh, with another place where <clears throat> the United States could run afoul of the international system. Um, and, I, and, I, and, and that, Mika, let me turn to you, um, is in just a couple of weeks at the UN General Assembly meeting where we're going to have the spectacle of the President of the United States chairing a meeting of the UN Security Council to talk about Iran. And, you know, I, as far as I know, this is going to be the first such public meeting the president has actually chaired since The Apprentice. Um, and it's 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 a little bit daunting to think of this president presiding in that way over the international community. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on this. Well, well I it actually hadn't occurred to me that he was going to preside until you said it. And now I'm trapped in an existential panic about what could potentially happen when he gets to the microphone and can't be stopped from saying things in front of the Security Council. Um, look, I, I'm i hopeful sorry, that, sorry has, about that, but... that he has a stomachache that day or something happens on the way to the UN. Maybe uh, somebody closes a bridge somewhere in New York. Um, you know, but I do think that this is really problematic where he has been on Iran compared to the rest of the Security Council is really problematic. And whether or not you think it was a good deal or a bad deal, and it certainly wasn't the best deal that we could have gotten, but it certainly was also better than anything that was on the table at the time. The JCPOA is something that the United States signed on to. And so the obligation of the United States to try and make it work from here on out is something that we should be abiding by. And this president could really put reveal how isolated and alone we are on that with the rest of the UN in the way that he talks about it. Uh, Corey, how do, how do you look forward to this? I have the exact same reaction as Mika does. Uh, I just finished reading the really wonderful novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, 
And one of the characters who's sort of trapped between the living and the dead um, is a, is a reverend, and his appearance is hair standing up, eyes bulging out, terror on his face. And that's basically me at the thought of the damage the president of the United States is likely to do to America's standing in the world by chairing the UN Security Council. Rosa, you have a colorful imagination when it comes to these things. <laughs> no, I'm turning my imagination off. It's just too awful. The images are too awful. Yeah, well, apparently, you know, he's, he's talking about Iran. He, the last time this happened, Obama talked about terrorism. And the president has the ability to do this. The Iranians actually have the ability to send their president into the room to respond to all of this, although it's not thought that he's going to come. Um, but but it it does create the opportunity for some really remarkable moments in diplomacy, uh, which is a little... It's a little unnerving, but uh, perhaps the fact that we're approaching uh, an election in the United States will have the president being more circumspect. Uh, ha! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, before we go, I do want to uh, say one thing, and that is that, Rosa, the word is bugbear. Bugbear, bugbear, bugbear. And it bug is bear. a cause of obsessive fear, imitation, or loathing, irritation, or loathing. Um, or is it the same as a bugaboo? Well, I think a bugaboo. It might be similar. This there's an archaic meaning of an imaginary being invoked to frighten children. Typically, a sort of hobgoblin supposed to eat children. Um, <laughs> and um, you know, it raises the possibility that someday people will speak this way of a Trump, you know, um, and, and, and that <laughs> like don't, don't go out, little junior or the Trump will get you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was a there was a poll over like a couple of days ago in Germany where the majority of the thing that Germans feared the most in the world. And after all, that's where a lot of these nursery rhymes and, and children's stories came from was Donald Trump more than Putin, more than wars anywhere else. They feared Donald Trump. And so I think the idea of Germans sitting around telling their kids in future generations, be careful or the Trump will get you. <laughs> well, the Germans uh, have plenty of historical things to feel guilt about, but I did think it was pretty funny. There was an article, I can't remember, the Times or the Washington Post uh, a few months back about the town in Germany that, that Trump's father had come from and all the Trumps into time immemorial had come from. And it was all about how these various German Trump relatives were blaming each other and saying things like, well, well he's your relative and saying, no, 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 he's only my 15th cousin. He's your third cousin. Uh, <laughs> Um, well, it could be an improvement because, as far as I know, Trump means in British slang "fart." Uh, it it means a particularly loud. You're our current expert on British slang. Wait, is that it. a recent item of slang that arose since 2016, or is that <laughs> as usual? Mika goes right to the pivot question. <laughs> No, apparently it's been around for um, a long, long time, and it means a particularly loud fart. Um, I do. Do the British still use that? When you're at meetings, do people refer to 
So, David, I've, I earnestly endeavor never to know the answer <laughs> to that question. As you know, I'm basically a 19th century woman, and I don't want the visual, I don't want the audio, I want to live in innocence of knowledge of this. Yeah, or the olfactory, for that matter, presumably. Um, well, you know, we cover a lot of ground here, and I felt we started the first 41 minutes of this podcast on the high ground and discussing some rather large issues. Uh, and you guys did that without much intervention from me at all. So I felt my job was to bring it down uh, to the New Jersey level, which is where I am right <laughs> Mission accomplished. Yes, well, that's why I'm here, guys. Um, anyway, uh, I want to thank you, uh, Rosa and Corey and Mika, for joining us for this edition of Deep State Radio. Uh, we hope everybody will join us again. And we remind you that later this week, uh, probably right around the, the weekend, we will be launching DeepStateRadioNetwork.com, which will be a website which will have on it the podcasts, and it will have on it some new content, and it will have on it a store where you can buy great swag, and it will... Yay! Yeah, exactly. And if you have ideas for swag, you will, you'll be able to send them to us, and we'll create swag, and we will have... Um, uh, a membership-only site, so there'll be some special content for members, and you can find out how to be a member there and help to support the work we're doing, because after all, we've been doing this for a long time without benefit of, of, of advertising or charging anybody anything, and we want to expand what we're doing, so we hope our, our listeners will help us with that. In any event, you go to go to you know deepstateradionetwork.com later in the week, take a look, um, and uh, you know join up. Uh, buy a mug, do something. Uh, and uh, until then, there'll be another episode very shortly, uh, later this week. Please join us for that episode. Thank you very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.